Welcome everyone to episode three of The Secret Podcast. It's been a big month with a lot of publicity and a lot of new people coming into the fold. We would like to welcome all of you into the madness and best of luck. We would also like to encourage you to listen to the first two episodes of this podcast and most importantly, get a copy of the book and read it. There's a lot of collective data out there on the hunt and not all of it is helpful. It's important that you read the book and understand how the hunt works, how the clues work, and decide for yourself how much of the online information you want to believe. There are several sites out there, and they all have information and theories on them, but the only sure answer is to dig up a cask. And I guarantee you that if anyone online had a sure answer, they would have dug up a cask by now. The best thing that you can do if you aren't in a city with a cask buried in it is to read the book and examine the puzzles, all of them, not just the one closest to you. Figure out the methods BP uses to give clues and how they work by looking at the solved cities. Figure out the instructions on how to do the puzzle. The biggest mistake you can make is to start in the middle of the puzzle. Another thing I'd like to address is digging without permission. A member of our team was recently contacted by the Parks Department in his city asking him if he had been digging. They were very unhappy about holes being put in a park without permission. This isn't 1984. Well, it's more like George Orwell's 1984. We live in a surveillance state. When you put a three-foot hole in the ground in a park, people are going to notice, and you may get fined and ruin any chances for future people with real solutions to have a chance to recover a cask. I know you want to think that you have the whole thing solved in a day, but I'm here to tell you, you don't. Digging holes without permission, claiming you found a cask with no proof, and telling people that you know the solutions but refuse to discuss them is all poison for the well. And continuing behavior like this has no other aim than to ruin the hunt altogether. It would be wise not to continue with such behavior. We shouldn't have to scold people like they're 10-year-olds, but if you want to act that way, it's a climate you're choosing to put yourself into. We can only assume that you're trying to ruin the hunt for everyone. There are ways to get permission and to do things correctly. It would be wise to take those paths moving forward. I'm not going to tell people what to do. I'm just saying it's not a good idea to keep this up. Because of our awesome co-host, George Ward, we have a Facebook site for the podcast now where you can ask questions and participate in discussions regarding the remaining casks. It's Shh, The Secret Podcast on Facebook. All you have to do is search S and then three H's, The Secret Podcast, and you'll find it. You can also post questions and requests for upcoming episodes there if there's something you want to discuss or you want to have us break down or you have a question about something posted up there we'll get to it on the podcast or a member of our team will answer it for you this month we're talking about the second cask found the one in cleveland and we're honored to have brian zinn and andy abrams the two individuals who dug up the cleveland cask in 2004 on the show with us you might also remember seeing them on the recent episode of expedition unknown and hopefully we'll get to discuss some of that as well later on in the episode. But right now, let's just jump into things with Cleveland and welcome Brian and Andy to the show. You guys are known 
for finding the cask in Cleveland in 2004. Uh, let's go back a little bit before that. How did you get involved with the book in the first place? When did you first find it or pick it up or learn about it? I bought the book in a bookstore when it came out in 1982. I believe I was a freshman in college down in Philadelphia. I went to Penn, which is coincidentally where Byron Price went as well. I bought the book. I love puzzles and that kind of stuff, and I got hooked. And how long did you mess around with it before you put it down, or did you ever put it down? Did you did you keep <laughs> messing with it for the for the entire time from the the time you got it till twenty uh, two thousand four? I messed with it the entire time I was in college. I thought that there was a cask in Philadelphia, and I got absorbed with the picture, which coincidentally turned out to be the Cleveland picture. I got obsessed with it. I, I could go into all my crazy ideas, but I would go into downtown Philadelphia. I would go into the Penn Library looking up star charts and historic things, and I would do this on a weekly basis. Then when I graduated college, I packed all my stuff away, ended up going to law school up in Boston. Even though the pictures were burned in my mind, and the verses were burned in my mind. For example, if I'm walking down the street and I see something that looks like something from the picture, I'd be looking around a little. And that's, But I didn't open the book. I had lost track of where I had put the book. Went to law school, ended up graduating law school, got a job in New Jersey, and I got married and had some kids. And... Taking up a lot of time on the podcast, I don't know the yeah. point. And so a little life got in the way, and then basically right. you, uh, did, was it when you found Quest for Treasure that you kind of really got into it seriously again? Oh, no, no. What happened was is that a few years before Quest for Treasure even started with The Secret, I had found the book. We had mo just moved into a different place in New Jersey, and I was unpacking my college stuff, my college box, and there was the book. And I picked it up, and I looked through it, and I just got the fever again. And I remember reading that at some point they were going to publish the solutions in a second book. So I went and looked up to see if the second book of The Secret was published, and it wasn't, and there was nothing on The Secret. So I tried to contact... Byron Price and the publishing company to find out what the solutions were and if they ever published it. I, I figured the, the hunt was over. The solutions must have been published years ago. And I was dying to find out where everything was. Did you write him a letter or call him? Or... Yes, I wrote him a letter. I sent him a fax. They wouldn't <laughs> respond. They wouldn't respond to me. <laughs> He sent the man a fax. Yeah. <laughs> I still saved the fax. I, I still have it. I still have it. And I sent him a nice letter explaining what I just explained to you. You know, where are the solutions? Didn't get a reply. And I couldn't get past the receptionist. You know, she just said, you know, he'll call you back. And he never did. Then I ran into Andy. Andy joined my law firm where I was. What year did you join Andy? Do you remember? Back to New Jersey in the early 2000s, I guess. 
So it must have been around the year 2000 or 2001 when uh, Andy shows up. And Andy's very good at talking himself into and out of many things. I basically, <laughs> I basically showed him the book, tried to explain it. I take it that's the first time Andy had ever seen or heard of the secret. He says, give me the book. We're going to call Byron Price after I explained it all. Well, well, hold on. That wasn't you. you this was over a period of months because first you came into my office and you have to understand that Brian was kind of known at the law firm for being a master waster of time. We had to bill at the firm and he was constantly going through diversions and puzzles and video games and things. I had, And it was a black hole time suck if you went into his office. And, <laughs> and I was totally victim to that. So he won't into my office one day goes hey uh start telling me about this thing you did college and and how you remember this brian you you would go out uh if you went out at midnight on a certain night on a certain day of the month and you stood at a certain place you would see something and i just looked at oh yeah absolutely yeah like he was out of his mind i'm thinking that's what you did in college so (laughs) you know the the first couple times through i was sort of impenetrable in terms of being sucked in because i knew if i did I don't think I, I don't think I ever anticipated I'd be talking about it 17 years later. But the first few times, I kind of dismissed him out of hand. Then he came to my office one day, and you can take it from there, Brian. Well, I got you into other things too, like playing Zork online and stuff oh, like that. Oh, <laughs> he, he enriched my life measurably. <laughs> All right, so so Andy's the the charmer finds right. a way to get a hold of BP. He says, "All right, we'll try and call him." So. Gets on the phone with the the receptionist, and he just says, "Byron Price, please." And she says, "Hold on." <laughs> and Byron Price gets on the phone, and Andy hands me the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he hands him the phone, talk to Rooney. All right. <laughs> So so you talk to him and he says, according to the art, I'll just paraphrase so we can move along a little bit. So he, he says to you, as far as I'm concerned, the game is still on. And that's what gets you kind of excited about trying to find a cask for yourself at that point. Absolutely. And also at that time, we had the Internet. It was a little bit primitive, but it was still there. Uh, so I start searching for things. And lo and behold, at some point, around 2003, I think it was, I find a post by Fox saying, anybody out there who's ever heard of The Secret? I was amazed, and I joined the group, and we started talking, and the rest is history. Let's go back to that time period, say early, you know, 2003. Quest for Treasure is is there. There's a, a thread for The Secret which, you know, it looks like you and Fox and a few other people created most of the, the pages or the threads on there, the initial ones. There's kind of this climate of uh, everybody's trying to do what they can to figure things out. Bits and pieces of information are coming in about, you know, what people are finding in, inside the images and what they could mean and all that. And you decide that you're looking for... And Matt told the story that he was looking for the Chicago cask in Washington, D.C. So these things are extremely ambiguous. And you were saying that you were looking for what uh, you thought was in Philadelphia, what was the cask for Image 4? 
you're you're snooping around Philadelphia, and then what happened? Had you planned to take a trip to Philly already, or uh, did you plan the trip out after the the? I just want you to go over the uh, incident with Johan and, and the message board and what had come up, kind of at the last moment that caused you to uh, to head to Cleveland. Um, the picture has an L and a bell in it, implying Liberty Bell. It has a, a, a strange-looking picture that could be a lion or the face of Ben Franklin. The jewel is in a keystone, and Pennsylvania is known as the Keystone State. So almost everything, and, and there are tons of arches that look like the arch in the picture in Philadelphia. So, yeah, I, I was heavily into looking at Philadelphia from the Internet, and almost everyone on Q4T, the bulletin board website, also thought that it was in Philadelphia. We didn't know which verse went with it. What we did is we started searching for words and things like that on Google or, or whatever, and I had typed in Socrates Pindar Apelles from one of the verses, and nothing came up. Nothing interesting came up. Right. And about a month later, Johan posts that he did the exact same thing and something did come up. It turns out that a new website had just posted something on the Cleveland Cultural Gardens. And they said on the wall of the Cleveland Cultural Gardens are these names of famous Greek people. And Socrates, Pindar, and Apelles came up, and Google caught it. You know, when you click on the link, you start to see the picture of the of the garden, the front of the wall. And as soon as I saw that, <laughs> you know, I mean, that picture was burned in my mind. I knew that that was Cleveland. And then you start searching around at other things in the cultural gardens. And in the Italian cultural garden is the fountain with the... The thing that looks like Ben Franklin's face, and it was just—it was more than one aha moment. You uh, corral Andy, and you both get permission from your better halves to go on this adventure to Cleveland, nine hours, right. and right. Andy's late getting to your house. Is the way the story goes. We're actually at the Borgata in Atlantic City, and we're in a bar, and he—he he keeps. He, I want to show you this. I'm going to show you this. I said, well, I just have a drink. No, we're with a bunch of guys. And um, he starts pulling out pictures of the of the Cleveland Cultural Gardens and the wall and the columns. And he's tied to it and he's showing me and it's seek the columns for the search. And, and his aha moment transfers over to me. And I don't want to be at the Borgata anymore. I want to be in Cleveland. I, I can't believe what he's showing me because if it really is true, then he has the spot. He has the place. And there's only so much you can glean from the picture. You you really know you have to be there if you're ever going to have a chance to see it through. So he, he now there's this buzz, and I can't get it out of my mind, and I'm reading everything I possibly can. There's a fever pitch. And he says, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm planning on a trip to Cleveland. And, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I said to my wife, my friend Brian from work, wants to um, take a trip to Cleveland. And she goes, uh-huh. And I said, <laughs> she, he, uh, he's, he's wants to look for this treasure we've been talking about. Goes, uh-huh. And I said, she goes, how are you going to get there? You're not going to fly. I said, no, nah, it's not going to cost any money. No, nah, we'll split the gas. 
She said, when are you going? I said, uh, Friday. And she said, mm-hmm. she goes, you know, Sunday is Mother's Day. And I said, yeah, I've got two little kids. I know Brian has kids. She goes, you do whatever you want. You just better be home by Sunday morning uh, for Mother's Day. And I said, yeah, that's fine. So I get to his house. Uh, we drive all night. And he drives all night. He is so wired up. I drove nine hours to Cleveland and nine hours back in basically a 24-hour period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, as we got... <laughs> I remember driving through, and that's a miserable drive through the state of Pennsylvania on Route 80 because it just goes forever. And then when it turned to Ohio and we thought we were finally going to be really close, <laughs> you know, we everybody's using, um, what was that? Map, not Map, MapQuest, right? It was it, it gave us another hour and 10 minutes. We, we were going to pull this up. We almost quit there. So we get to the hotel around, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning and we check in. And we know we have limited time. This is what I remember. We check into the hotel. I'm exhausted. I had already slept in the car. He's not sleeping at all. I fall asleep for a few hours. I think he stays up, continues to read over everything he's ever researched. Because we know we have, well, we know we have one shot. We're under the we gun. We have one Basically day. on the clock. We're under yeah. the gun. And we had set a drop dead time of like six o'clock to leave because that's the only way we could make it back. And, and make breakfast in bed for our wives, you know? So that was going to be quitting time. And so we get, we get up at 7.30, I think, and we go to check out. I remember the woman says to me, uh, the woman said to me, are, uh, are you checking in? I said, no, checking out. She goes, when did you get here? I said, about three hours ago. So she looks at me. Here comes Brian walking over in these tube socks pulled up to his knee and these short shorts shorts and this kind of pink salmon shirt. And she kind of looks at me. I go, I go he's not... My, because she gave me this look like we don't rent rooms by the hour. I said, we, we're not, not my boyfriend. <laughs> so he walks over to check out and she goes, so what are you guys doing in Cleveland today? Going to check out the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And Brian whips out a map. He goes, actually, we're going to check out the uh, Cultural Gardens. And I go, oh, he is my boyfriend. I lied. There's no way around it. So we uh, we check out, drive to the gardens. Not yet. Hold on. We'll oh, go, to, go to McDonald's. To get breakfast, and we end up getting lost on the way to the garden. <laughs> yeah, not a not a good sign uh, of things to come. But I I do remember when we got there. You know, we were like little kids. This was something he'd been studying for twenty three years. This was something that got crammed into me over a, a much shorter period of time. But the excitement level was crazy. And the newspaper guy comes and meets us. And there's a photographer named Marvin, and they're looking at, at at him and me, and like we're the smartest guys in the room, and they want to be part of this. So I, I remember turning the corner with Brian and seeing the wall and the columns, and I remember it was like Christmas morning, like kid waking up. We parked right near the columns, and I got out of the car, and I just had to take it all in. The columns and the wall, you know, this was something that, had been burned in my mind for years and years. I said hello to the reporter and the other guy, and, and then I said, just a minute, I have to go check something out. And I ran over to the Italian gardens to see the fountain and everything else. And to tell you the truth, that made the whole trip, right then and there, just seeing everything for real. You went over and you saw the arch, you saw the fountain, uh, the lion's head that kind of spits water out of it, right? Into into the half shell, right. We had solved the puzzle right then and there. Even if we didn't find the treasure, <laughs> that's how I felt. I got a question for you. So you, you arrive there, you're on site, you see the wall, you see the, the columns, you're looking around, 
and you notice because all this stuff even though it is somewhat close together it's not all crammed into one area you have to walk you know a, f a few yards over to the italian gardens and you have to walk around the area a little bit and there's a lot of little plots of space there rectangular plots if you will all over the place so what was it that made you go to the back of that wall versus any other rectangular plot that you could find in in the area because you had an arch you had a fountain you had all kinds of things that matched the image what was it about the wall that that drew you to to that spot because it is kind of uncanny that the, out of all the spots you could have dug you you guys picked the right one right well in the nine hour car ride <laughs> on the way over there were a few things that didn't that we didn't know the answer to the biggest one was seven steps up you can hop there is no back of the wall on the internet it just wasn't there we'd had no idea what it meant so we just had to keep looking around until we could figure it out you know we were walking around behind the wall andy i think was the first one to see you know the seven steps leading up from down you know there was a big steep hill behind the wall also, though, when we got out of the car, you know, you you know, you're in a place where the author has been uh, because all the visual identifiers are there. So you know he was here. You know those columns in the wall. It's there's no question. And as you walk through the columns towards the wall, there's a huge grass rectangular plot. When I saw that, I think when we both saw that, our first uh, idea was, well, it must be in that grass. And that was the front side of the wall, and that's what's pictured. So it made the sense, and it says in a rectangular plot. So before we ever went to the back, John, it, it, in our estimation, it was going to be in the front, but it was like 60 by 90. It was a pretty big plot of land, and I'm thinking, they're never going to let us dig this entire thing up, so we're going to have to figure out where. So as we're, we're scouting that spot, a guy comes over with the truck, and they start setting up white chairs on the lawn. And we looked at the guy and said, what are you doing? And he goes, we're setting up for a wedding. And we said, what do you mean you're setting up a wedding? He said, well, there's a wedding here at 12 o'clock. And that's about 9.30 in the morning. And we realized, wait a second, we just drove nine hours. We're so pumped up and they're going to have a wedding. And there's just no way they're going to let us dig the ground during, you know, people taking vows. Right. And so now there's this, oh my God, we picked the wrong day, right? Like, what did we do? <laughs> And we're dev so that's the roller coaster ride. Like we're so up with the columns in the wall, and then the chairs are being set up, and and right then it's over, right? But we start scouting around, and I remember we walked to the back of the wall because we wanted to see the road that curved. Um, that was Martin Luther King Drive. Yeah, Brian, I can't remember. That, well, it was li Liberty. It ended Liberty ended up being li Liberty. Liberty, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was the road that curved beneath two countries. So now we're on the back side of the wall. Which, right, until you get there, you would never find, there were no pictures of it, nothing even on the internet. So we're sitting there and we're kind of wrapping our head around the fact that, you know, now by process of elimination, we can't even dig by the huge rectangular plot. And we start to notice that this area, unlike the front, has steps. This area has a sunken pit area where you have to walk up and, and we start walking it. And lo and behold, it's one, two, three. We get to six, and we're right in front of this huge rectangular flower planter. And now we both look at each other like, wait a second. Because this last one, you can't just walk. you got to hop up on it. And so, again, we're, we're, we're plugged in. We're pumped up. We're like, it's here. It's got to be here. 
you know, I don't know what, you know, ultimately how it, it you got to get lucky. Sure. If they haven't set up chairs in the front, we may have spent an inordinate amount of time in the front trying to calculate things. But something kind of helped us and pushed us to the back. And once we got there and you saw the layout, it made a lot more sense. What you're saying is there's a, a small set of stairs in front of the planter and then there's a uh, patio and this is going from the bottom of the stairs up towards the plot where you've dug. So there's yes. the set of stairs. There's a small, uh, small little patio of, of cement. And then yes. there's a uh, another stair or two. I think it's almost like a bench in front of. Okay, the, so it goes right to the bench. There's a, what looks like a, a kind of a big stone bench, and then the planter is up behind the the bench area. And the bench would actually be the the sixth step of right. the little group that you're going. Yeah, and then there's then you've got the patio, and then the five other little steps. Okay, right. so it was five so, steps, and then the patio, and then the bench, and then the uh, the the plot was right behind the bench area. Right. right, that patio is flat. I think you walk down three steps to get to the patio area, but once you're there, you wind up walking one, two, three, four, five steps up. The sixth step up, as you said, is that plateau kind of table area in front of the flower pot, yeah. and the seventh then, if you're standing on that ledge, you can hop up onto the top of that um, long, big flower. And you're um, standing behind the wall right there. You got it, exactly. Okay. And I think because we had that clue in our mind, because we couldn't solve that one, seven steps up you can hop, that that's what we were looking for. You know, you go f up five little steps, and we wanted to find six and seven, and we did. Here comes the tricky part, and this is what uh, it has been... A subject of debate. We've talked about it. Um, it. It's been brought up many a times. It's the one thing that we still are, can't be 100% sure of. So if you're coming at the back of the wall from that direction and you're trying to count stones per ha how he describes you to count them in the verse, you're going to end up a completely polar opposite of where you should be digging to find the cask. Right? Yeah, that's right. And that's where I dug for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as the story goes, you tore up that whole entire piece of land there, just like Chicago. At the very end, you got totally fed up, and, and then Andy went over and kind of stuck the pole in the ground and hit something. And why don't you tell us how it went? Digging for five hours. The wedding's probably come and gone. It's getting close to, you know, <laughs> six. You're going to have to get back. How do things turn for the better? As we're digging, and, and we he, he counted it out. He had the shovel. I was the videographer. I wanted to capture this moment for him. I know it had been 20 years. You know, so he counts that facing the wall, we count from right to left or whatever was the number over, and we count 10 down. It's exactly 10 down beneath the 10th stone. So we said, all right, this is the X marks the spot. It's got to be here. And so he starts sticking the prodding pole in and he's doing it. And it's amazing that they let us dig because there's, there's shrubs in there. You know, part of what was uh, a little unfair, I mean, they mentioned the, the couplet in the verse and pictures that we've subsequently seen shown that there were two uh, couplets or urns on each side of the wall. They had been removed when we were there. So that would have been another identifier for us to to make it even further 
obvious, but they weren't there over time. So he's digging down and yeah, we didn't know if it was two feet, three feet. The planter itself probably went about four, maybe four feet. It's not just dirt. He's displacing shrubs. The horticulture guy is allowing it. I can't believe it. We're digging down. He's hitting root after root of these huge trees that were growing from the sides. So we had to chip away at the roots. So it took. That's why it took so long. I mean, there were just roots and rocks and everything in there. So you don't have to tell me about that. Right, 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 right. right. We're, we're preaching to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. But I mean, he, he every time you hit the roots, you convince yourself that's a different feel. Like that's yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah for and, sure. And I have to give Andy credit, kept volunteering to dig, but I wanted to find this thing. So I did not let Andy dig for five hours. Remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon when he's the genie, shrinks down Davy Duck, and he winds up in that little clam with the pearl. He goes, mine, 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 it's all mine, mine, mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that Brian was a miniature Daffy Duck, and he was just digging and digging, and I wanted to capture it. And the lower we went, he kept, he'd stop, and he'd go, I don't understand. It's not supposed to be, be more than two feet or three feet. How can I this just, be? I just all kept saying to my all adds up. It's, it's got to be here. It's got to be here. We have solved every clue. We have and solved the, it all. Yeah, and the, 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 the part that was really driving us crazy or made us fearful is if it's not here, then maybe it just doesn't exist. Maybe the Chicago thing was a, a hoax to sell the book. And oh, that's a good city. point. At the time... At the time, we nobody knew that there were rumors that the people in Chicago had found it, but nobody ever saw a newspaper article or anything at that point. Well, that's what Matt had said on the last episode, is that there were rumors that something was found in Chicago, but it wasn't like it is today where you find out about it the next day. It's, right. it's kind of a, a you know urban legend, so to speak. So you guys weren't even sure whether that this was a legitimate thing at the time or not. No, this was a huge, a huge leap of faith. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way you can describe it. But having made the leap, having driven the distance, having found what we thought was pretty much the X marks the spot, we were prepared to dig, or I was prepared to watch him dig through the base of this thing and come out the other side, right? So we figured you're either going to hit the bottom or you're going to find it at some point. But if it wasn't there then I, in my mind, thought but maybe he really didn't bury the treasures. Maybe it's just something that was supposed to get you kind of pumped up because there was no other place it could possibly be. So after five hours, he climbs out of the box. All of the dirt had been displaced to the side. The guy who runs the garden says, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll put it back for you. He has to now hoist himself out of like this. It, it was... Uh, like a coffin, like dead man walking. He sits down on the front steps. The whole five hours, the news guy was asking us questions and interviewing us the whole time. While you're digging the hole? The whole oh, time. Absolutely. He was there for the whole thing. So in one ear, you have the news guy. Yeah, so what, what, do, you, what do you do for a living? And asking you all these questions. <laughs> then in the other ear, you have... Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to join this man and woman. What a strange scene it must have been. There were people from the wedding, I remember in white tuxes or something, who came around the back of the wall while Brian was three feet down in the hole. And they're like, what's he doing? What's hey, what are, you guys, what are you guys doing? And we were digging for treasure. Come here, look at this, come here. So the yeah, guests from the wedding were coming around to see... Ultimately, though, like if it was one of those uh, fast action, you know, things like the wedding disappears, the, the chairs are pulled away 
Um, the newspaper guy who was talking to us all the time started to lose his enthusiasm. And Marvin, the photographer, is sent away. You know, we reach a point that it's not going to be found. And um, and we hit literally rock bottom. It's been all these hours. Everybody's pretty much on the verge of giving up. Some people have given up. Brian crawls out of the the Roman tub, the the big you know <laughs> stone planter box. And what happens for everybody who's just new to this? And tell me what happens. How how does Andy end up inside the hole with a shovel? I just grab a soda at that point, and I I sit down on the steps, exhausted. Just absolutely exhausted. I know that our time is almost up. And Andy takes the probe and walks to the other side of the box. It was about 4.30. We knew we had about a half hour left. So this was kind of time to say our goodbyes. But you were just tired. You were totally defeated. Like you, I, he was so upset. And I felt so bad for him, you know, because this was the culmination of all these years of work. So I'm standing there and... He happens to sit at the bottom of the steps now, so I turn to look at him, and I'm looking at the roadway as it curves, and we had gone over the verse 10,000 times over the nine hours that we were driving, every possible meaning, and I'm seeing a curve, and I know the Italian guy, so I said at one point, you know, Brian, if you are facing this direction, different perspective, and you're looking at the first line beneath you know, two countries as the road curves, you would actually, if you counted it now, same way, stones from right to left, it would take you to just the other, still within the box. I just, as I climbed up on the box, I realized, huh, you're still in the box. And I said, we counted the same 10 stones down, but it put us on the exact opposite side of the flower box. So I said, it would, you know, it would put you here and he's drinking his Pepsi and he is so bummed and he takes the metal prod that we got at Home Depot and he goes, here, knock your socks off. And he kind of tosses it at me like annoyed. And so I take it and I drive into the ground once. And I, I tell the story to my friends because it still blows my mind. Like the old, and I think I told you this once, John, like the old uh, Tootsie Pop commercial. And how many licks does it take to get the scent? It was like a one, two. And that third one, literally, there was a different feeling. I had prodded. He dug, but I prodded. I knew it wasn't a root. And I knew it wasn't a rock. So I did it again, and there was a scratching sound. And I, I, I get these chills, like goosebumps. And again, we're as down as you can be. So now I'm starting to come up and start moving the, the dirt away of the hands, I said. And we, I come across this big shard of plexiglass. Okay. And I, it doesn't belong there. We had seen garbage. We had seen things there, but nothing like this. So I look at Brian. I said, Brian, he said, what? I said, I just found a huge piece of plexiglass. And he goes, yeah. And I, I took and I winged it at him. I could have cut him through his juggler. Oh, he, he thought you were messing with him. Yeah, I said to him, plexiglass is tra I go, plexiglass is translucent, man. And I throw it at him. And as the last syllables coming out of my mouth, he is in the dirt <laughs> with his hands like a golden retriever trying to dig out his favorite bone. Mine, so mine, mine, all mine. Yeah, well, he's back. I mean, all of a sudden, like, that's the thing, the emotion, the breadth of, of, of depth of emotion from as high as we were to as low as we went, and in that instant right back that the possibility existed, maybe it was there. And within maybe 10, 15 minutes, we have the top shoveled off, 
And we know, and now the newspaper reporter goes, holy shit, oh my God. He calls Marvin, get back here. The guy who's, who's the, 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 the horticulture guy is going, oh my God, what is that? So we know it's not some bag of roots and he works it and works it and slowly but surely we unearth this thing. He pulls it out of the ground and it's this large, probably basketball sized uh, plexiglass, sturdy plexiglass box and inside is the the remnants of the cast because over time i guess it had caved in and it was filled with dirt but we knew you guys said that it was pretty caked in there like it had yes. been been destroyed previous to you guys even arriving and and probably been pushed in there and been been filled with mud for a while right yeah it may have been that when they planted shrubs in because remember there were shrubs in that box so at some point, somebody dug and figured nobody hit it because it was two, two and a half, three feet down. Nobody hit So they may have done it, but it was clear because the first I thought, oh, God, I poked it with the prodding thing and I broke it. But it, that mud had been caked on for years and years. So now he's got it and it was so fragile. We go back over to the Italian garden in the fountain that had been this thing for him for 23 years. And he washed it piece by piece. He took out his toothbrush. <laughs> And I started scraping away the dirt till we could uncover. And man, I got to tell you, it was ridiculous. It was it was surreal. It was like I I can't believe that we actually found this. Did you have a cell phone at the time? Were cell phones around? Uh, yes. Yeah, I did. All right, so you were able to call. Uh, but you know what, John? It was like I I want to say it was like the 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 Palm Pilots because when even when we videoed it. It was on a handheld, you know, one of those big cameras you put like on your shoulder. Sure. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like we had our smartphones and you could video this stuff. So we didn't call anybody. You didn't call. I, I don't remember. I didn't call home. We just knew it was like an episode of 24 and we were in the last hour. <laughs> we had, we were like Jack Power and Chloe and we had solved it. Uh, but now the electricity, the newspaper guy, because he's been writing all day. It was the happy ending. Like one hour early, there was no happy ending. So... He's cleaned it off. We're staring at it. And just as we have it laid out, we're like, okay, we got to go. And they're like, what? And he said, we got to go. It's 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 six o'clock and we got to leave now. We're not going to make it for Mother's Day. So we pack up our stuff. We, we hug our friends and we say goodbye. And the two of us are still just like, what just happened? So we drove in silence for quite a long time. For most of the nine hours back, Andy was asleep. <laughs> and uh, I drove just on adrenaline, and it was actually a horrible, horrible rain and thunderstorm. But I kept trying to wake Andy up to talk about it. <laughs> it was, it's funny. I don't remember that, but I trust you. But I, I, it was a very, I was definitely emotionally spent. I can't remember ever doing anything that, again, the high was so high and the low was so low in such a compact period of time. So I do remember stopping, and I, I had said this before, but we stopped at like a Bob Evans or something, rest stop. Yeah, and had to eat. yeah. Yeah, I'm sitting there with him, and, and, and Brian, very chatty tonight, but not always the most reactive guy. And I'm like, what are you feeling? Like, what are you thinking this? And now I'm interviewing him. I said, I don't understand. This is 23 years in the making. How does, I mean, what's going through your head? And he's, he, we're eating and he looks at me and he goes, I gotta tell you, you know, next to the birth of my kids, th this is the greatest moment of my entire life. And I got complete goosebumps because I, I, I got it. Like my portion of this was so truncated in time, it was packed into about a year. 
And then it was super packed into those last couple months and weeks. But he had been living this 23 years, thought it was was confident Philadelphia. And here we were, you know, thousands of miles away and we we hit the spot. So it was an amazing thing. But now we have it. Was it the first dig that you ever went and did for, on this? Absolutely. The- I mean, I don't know if anyone dug anything up to that point uh, from the quest for treasure boards. I'm not even sure. Is there anything that you wanted to ask or was there any internet questions uh, for Brian and Andy about the actual find itself, the dig, George? No, there weren't any about the dig. The the only thing that I take from this, and I take the same thing from Chicago, and it seems to be a problem now with with people who are, are currently working on these puzzles, is that the visual clues in the paintings are obvious. And they're not obvious, like, they may not be obvious until you get there. But when you get to the site, they're obvious. There's nothing else those columns could be. There's nothing else that planner could be. There's, you know, there's nothing else that fountain could be. In these, to solve them, you don't have to, like, you're not, you don't have to zoom in on an image and count dots. Things don't kind of look like something else. They look exactly like it. That's a good point. Um, you guys, when when you were doing your image comparisons, and I know we, we'll post this uh, photo that I made uh along with the uh, other photos we have up on a f- our Facebook page. But uh, I made a, did a photo where we took all of the things that were found in the uh, Cleveland image and we superimposed the real images over the actual painting. And we'll post that up there, but there wasn't anything in that image that you had to like use a microscope to see or strain your eyes. It was all pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, sizable images that you were finding, correct? Yeah, that's correct. John Jude Palancar is an amazing artist, and he has figured out ways to just blend things into the paintings, and you really don't, don't know what it is that you're that you need to see until you're there, or until you see it on the internet, I guess. Now I think about it, I remember the thing that hooked me before he even showed me the wall when that was discovered, because that was clean. That that got me in a car driving nine hours, but I remember when he showed me the, the Cleveland Terminal Tower, the silhouette, and I remember when he showed, and the trees, and I remember when he showed me uh, the state of Ohio, it brought me right back to Highlights Magazine when I was a kid. Yep. He used to find the images in the picture, and we all played it. We all, you know, I'm 51, but like, I remember how much you'd go to that page and that was the thing you wanted to circle before your brother and sister got to find them. So when I saw that, that combination of puzzle and imagery and then the other stuff, and then as he first explained it to me, didn't know which verse went with that. It was so brilliant. It wasn't that one went with one, two went with two. So to have to put that together, the fact that there were those identifiers that were a little tricky, but then when you got to the site, very large, dead-on confirmers that, this is where it is. There's no question. It's almost like if you bothered to get all the way there, he was rewarding you by saying, look at the picture. You'll know when you're close when you see these two or three things. Yeah, it seems like the the whole thing works like that in some respects because when we're saying it's, it's hidden in plain sight or, you know, when you see it, you know what it is. It's not an optical illusion. It's not a blur that you just happen to catch at the right light. It's something that he's blended into another object to make it look like something else. But when you actually see it, you see, oh, that's a tree or that's a box or that's a, 
you know, that's a windowsill or whatever it is that you see. Once you see it, you see it. The whole puzzle kind of works like that. For example, in St. Augustine, the first chapter written in water, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you're standing in front of what he meant you to, for you to see when you're reading that. So the whole puzzle, and I think what George was, was getting at was that there was nothing that was um, ever questionable where you said, well, this kind of looks like this. I mean, the tiles in image four are definitely the tiles that you see at the, the cultural gardens. The pillars are definitely the pillars. The walls, definitely the wall. The fountain is definitely the fountain. It, it's nothing you have to strain to see, right? Don't forget the centaur's cup. That's also an. There were so many aha moments when you get there, and also back then uh, there were a few things that we had just barely figured out. I believe we had just figured out. I think it was Fox who figured out the, that there are latitudes and longitudes hidden in the pictures, and I think that we had figured that out about a, only a month before we went to Cleveland. So it was like an additional confirmer for Cleveland. Well, George, it, it, I mean, I do personally believe there's a deeper puzzle going on, and I'm sure if Matt were able to join us tonight, uh, he was unable to join us, but if he were here, we'd be taught discussing the, the path and how that works. But it just goes to, to prove once again George's point that you really don't need to understand fully how the puzzle works to actually find a cask, and I guess that's one of the flaws going on. It, you guys didn't have any conception that there was a starting point and you go from here to here or any of that stuff because it, I mean you were bar you barely knew about the Chicago find so there was really no model on how to do these correct right it was it, for for us it was it was written it was written in the verse seek the columns for the surge once he had the information about the wall and once you stand there and see it what amazes me to this day 13 years later is even standing in the at the columns, looking at the wall, it can be anywhere. Even if you get to the right side of the wall, flipping a coin, it can be anywhere. If you get to the flower box, have we not poked the poker in that spot or poked it two inches to the right, and I go all the way down, I go, that's ah, stupid, come on, at 6 o'clock, let's go. So the way I looked at it, and I know you guys have done a ton of work on on plotting out deeper meanings and, and, and methods to that probably link together a lot of these, you know, there, there's a latitude and longitude. There are images that go from larger to smaller that get you from state to city to place. And then there are confirmers of that place. But I believe that coupled with the words that take you to the spot, there are at least one or two confirmers that are so absolute that give you that, that you know, uh, I'm within a few feet and I have to dig here. Like when you said right. the part about, um, St. Augustine, right? Unless you were standing there or had vacation there, you would not know that the book starts with written in water. And and my, my favorite, and I'm sure you'll cover it in another episode, but my favorite one to this day is is the North Carolina by Dulles and Incongruable Determination. Like when I see that, and again, when you cover it, you'll cover it, but to stand at the base of a statue and see words written on a statue and know, he looked up, he was thinking, mm, I need something here. Oh, that's a cool quote by Dauntless and Unconquerable Determination. And unless you had been to Kill Devil Hill, and unless you had seen that on the wing statue, you wouldn't know that it's there. But once you've seen it, your heart beats 10 times faster every second because you know that's a place where he stood. So definitely, pad in hand, which he confirmed for us when we met him, 
he basically took notes on his whereabouts. And when he decided where he wanted to dig, he took notes and then he would create the verse around what he had seen in the pictures he took. Yeah, that's definitely one of the, the if you can call an ongoing theme in this, that's definitely one of them is that it, it, the riddles are sometimes are clever and you will know them when you see them undoubtedly. I mean, it's like they just jump out at you when you're standing there and you're at the right spot and you're reading the thing the right way and interpreting it the right way. So I agree it's full of that. So, okay, they find the cask and let's let's set it up. Now you have to contact Byron Price. So I, I, I assume, did, did you call him or? Um, the newspaper guy talked to Byron Price because he interviewed him for the article. And uh, basically Byron Price says that, you know, he hasn't been to the vault <laughs> the jewels are in a vault. He hasn't been there in a long, long time, and he needs to find the key. I think that made the uh, Cleveland article as well. So I just waited to hear from him. A month goes by, two months, three months. So finally I, I send him an email saying, you know, uh, we'd like to come out and see it. And he says he can't find the key to the vault. I check in with him every now and then. I don't know how long it was. It was several months, wasn't it, Andy? Uh, it was either July or August. I could I could double check, but it, it was certainly a couple months because we got a little fidgety and antsy. Like, why? I mean, this whole idea that there was a vault somewhere, you know, it was so perfect. <laughs> it wasn't even that it was a safety deposit box. He couldn't find the key to the vault, like the crypt keeper. And we're like, what are you talking about? We just went to Cleveland and dug this again. You gotta be able to find the jewel. So, and he was kind of, he was kind of cool about the whole thing. Like, it wasn't a big deal. So when, when uh, Brian, you set it up with him, you finally found the day and we went into New York together. Right. We picked the day and we drove into New York and along the way we're thinking, you know, we've never met him. What is it? What is it going to be like? We were like joking to ourselves. Maybe this is going to be like a scene out of Willy Wonka where, you know, he's got half a hat on and half a clock and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, we when we get to his office, we go up into the elevator and we walk out of the elevator and we're in a room that is coated with like aluminum foil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, walls, the ceilings, everything. And and we looked at each other. He goes, and we say, wow, we really are in Willy Bonkin's factory. Yeah. It was like a space. It was like a space chamber. It was so weird in the middle of this New York building. Skyscraper. We walk in and you're right. It was all silver, like covered in aluminum foil. And we, we didn't know where the entry door or the exit door. Uh, it was like a final, it was like a final test or rite of passage. You had to figure your way in and out if you were going to meet him. Right. You remember that? It was so yeah, weird. Absolutely. We, uh, I guess we get to the door. We, we somehow get out of that room. We get into his main office area. It's not his office. It's like his whole office building. And there are just books everywhere. Thousands and thousands of books everywhere. And it's a very busy office. Receptionist brings us over to Byron Price. He comes out of his office. I had brought the cask. We each brought our books with us. He loved seeing the cask. Uh, he ended up autographing our books at some point. But he started reminiscing about things. And were you in the car, Andy, or did, yes. was it just me? No, we were in the car, yeah. too. And so we got into his convertible, little convertible car, and we drove to this vault, this bank, and we got into the uh, into the bank, and 
I guess he hadn't been there in a long time. So we were like waiting in the bank for like 20 minutes. I, we had no idea what he was doing. He was talking to the teller. So eventually he got permission to go and he takes us down into the basement in the vault with him, with the, his key to the box. And before he opens the box, he, he's talking to us and he, he's basically saying, you know, the solutions are in the boxes in the vault as well. He asked me what uh, gemstone it is, and I told him it's the aquamarine, because he didn't really even remember that. <laughs> you know, he's more like an, an absent-minded professor kind of guy. That's how I think of him. And uh, but, it, but he's very funny. He ended up taking a picture of us, uh, like a selfie, and sending it to his wife. He was dating his wife at the time that he buried the treasures. So, you know, this was a t 20 years ago. We stand about 15 feet away from him while he takes the box uh, behind a screen and we hear rustling through it and it's pretty dark in there. He says, oh, the solutions, they're not here. And uh, he keeps looking some more and, and he says, oh, I forgot about these. And it turns out that he had, I think it was 25,000, right, Andy? $25,000 savings bonds. $25,000 in savings bonds that he had left there for 20 years. So it was probably a lot more than that. Wow. <laughs> and he didn't he didn't even buy us lunch. Well, well he, 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 no, I mean, he's going through the box. We, you got a picture, like you said, it, the, the, the office is, it's not like a hoarder, but there's books everywhere. There is this, there is this quirky feel to the guy. And, but he was definitely well. He was excited. a publisher, right? He's a he yes, runs a publishing yes, company, yes, yes, yes. and you guys oh. were attorneys. Yeah, right. Well, he probably figured you guys could pay for your own lunch. No, <laughs> <laughs> but we. I remember, you know, as he's rifling through, we're both kind of looking at each other like he he. There was an air of excitement about him because he said, you know, we didn't know if he was going to give it to us and leave. He got very chatty. And we're thinking, let's hang with him. Let's have lunch. Maybe he'll tell us something that we can use for another dig site. We'll ask him some right. questions. You know, and he was pretty free with, with you know, information when we wound up going to lunch. But, yeah, as Brian said before that, he's digging through the box. Oh, here's the, here's the ruby or, he, you know, that's not it. Well, he says, here's the, here's the blue jewel. And he comes out and he hands it to me. And, you know, it's dark in there. It turns out he gave me the wrong jewel. He gave me the sapphire instead of the aquamarine. <laughs> the aquamarine is my birthstone, and I had only been looking 22 years for it, and so I still don't have it. When I find the one in St. Augustine, I'll trade you. Exactly, trade. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> the very, very elite group of trading, but people who have only people who have found gems from Byron Price's The Secret. <laughs> Right. Three users. So there's one question since you guys were talking about him being kind of absent-minded. Um, the, the, the biggest question that I've gotten so far is somewhere in the forums, Brian, you said that he mentioned the 10 by 13 was feet instead of trees. Yes, I, I remembered. I tried to remember everything he said that day because I truly wanted to help everyone on the boards. So, you know, that's why we had lunch with him and we hung out and all that. And so I was just trying, I couldn't write it down. That would be rude and he would stop talking. So I basically just had to try and remember everything he said. And 
I distinctly remember him going through the book, talking about, you know, he was like flipping through the pages while we were waiting for his car or something. I got him talking about Chicago. And he said, yeah, M&B, that stood for Mozart and Beethoven. And 10 by 13, that was feet. He did say that. And he told me the story about two young stockbrokers and there was a concrete slab and some construction going on and they couldn't, he told me all this, that they, they couldn't get to the cask. So they sent him a picture of the slab and he said to them, well, when the slab uh, is removed, then the jewel is yours. And this is what he told me. And, you know, it was 22 years ago that he's remembering this from. So, and he's at, he couldn't even remember that the solutions weren't there. He couldn't remember that he had lost $25,000 in savings bonds. So maybe he got some of these things wrong as well. And I think he did. But I can tell you that is what he told me. It was a long time, and he had done a lot in his life and his career since the time of burying these things. There's a, probably a good chance that he did forget some things. Some people would say... You know, look, when you do something as magnanimous as this, you don't forget about it. But, you know, maybe you do lose track of some of the details. Well, I think if this was the only book he ever did, and if he was, like, famous for this, he'd remember every detail. But he puts out, like, a book a week. Right, so, right, yeah. And he's into making money selling the books. Maybe he really loved the idea of doing this, but it was just a book to him, just, just a way to try and make money. Because he even mentioned that he thought that everyone would dig up all of these things right away and that the publisher would kill him. <laughs> That's what he thought. Now, I know everybody listening would, would kill me if I didn't ask. Is there anything that he told you that would help the current searchers? We actually have the solutions. So uh, <laughs> if, you could, if you could just mail those to me, that would be nice. <laughs> Uh, I put everything on the Quest for Treasure bulletin boards in detail. You know, now you're asking me to remember everything from 14 years ago. <laughs> if you go to the Quest for Treasure bulletin board and you look at the thread called Cleveland, you will see I wrote down pretty much everything that he told me. And we'll we'll link that somewhere, make it easier to find. I remember after we came back, I had read through every entry, everything that was on, but I had never gone on. I was always, I was sort of a silent partner, but after we found it, it was so exciting. I know Brian used to use the icon for, uh, what was it, Brian? Calvin, from Calvin and Hobbes. So I started using the icon for Hobbes, like his imaginary friend, and he was Egbert, so I became Siskel. And so a <laughs> partnership. And started commenting on things we 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 definitely put down everything we saw took in smelled felt we put in there with the hope that it would help somebody else solve something else because we had our moment and even then the, the cleveland plane dealer then came out with like a 10 page weekend insert article where he the the, the author he basically um transposed what was happening in real time and you got the feel. It's an excellent article, Christopher Evans. We'll we'll put a link to that article up as yeah, well. It, it was it was great, but I would say this though. And you guys say, well, I don't know if you remember. It's twenty some years ago. I don't know that. I don't know that I totally agree with that because he, he didn't go in connection with his other books to different places and dig and get on planes and digs 
and then have to write these, uh, you know, th these these complex uh, verses to go with his friends' paintings. I mean, I think this was far different than w whether it was fantasy, you know, type stuff or not. It was very different than anything else he wound up doing and went into eye publishing later. And you remember where you went. I don't care. If I, I remember where I was, you know, 24 years ago when it's significant. He asked us when we were at lunch, you know, what did we see? What was the solve? And we showed him, you know, a number of the clues. I didn't get the feel then that, you know, he never said to us, you know, did you ever consider this part? Or there's also this, or I'm surprised you solved it because you never figured out this part of it. You know, we showed him all the identifiers. We got him to sort of like what we're telling you guys. And he looked at us and said, you got it. There's some theories about why he would be apprehensive about wanting to uh, continue his enthusiasm for the puzzle to be solved. It, after 20-some years, I mean, this is these are just some arguments. I'm not saying they're my opinions, but there's some arguments that I've heard that after 20 years, it's not of his benefit to continue uh, the hunt, to give clues. Um, the only thing that is going to come from him perpetuating it is he's going to have to get gems and meet with people and give out the prizes. It, it seemed like he was not in any kind of way looking to put out a second book after 20-some years. You know, maybe he had just forgotten some of the things. Maybe he didn't. It probably didn't behoove him to want to continue to get everybody else to solve it. So, A, we feel that there was maybe a, a, a process of vetting someone when you went to tell him that what you thought were the answers to some of the riddles and where you thought it was, if you were completely off base, he might go as far as to say, well, there's not even a treasure in St. Augustine. But if you were on to something, he maybe he would help you out then. Didn't seem like after 20 years that he wanted to uh, perpetuate something that was just going to continue to uh, take up his time and he'd receive nothing from it. There's been that argument has been made about it as well. I'm going to tell you this, and Brian, you may feel differently, but I'm going to tell you this. One of the, you know, besides being one of the few that found one, okay, we were definitely one of the few who ever got to sit with him and talk to him face to face. And people can argue and dissect and try to figure things out as much as they want, but this was just uh, a guy who grew up in, you know, Brooklyn, New York, uh, had a family, did this thing when he was younger. When we sat with him that day, he was psyched that we were there. I do remember very well the selfie that he took. He said, would you guys mind if I take this? I have to show it to my wife. Like there was a a youthful exuberance that came out that, huh, after all this time, wasn't that this was his legacy, his great achievement in life, but that he had done this and then finally came back. I never got the feeling that this was now going to be a huge annoyance factor. He was going to deal with it. I thought he was kind of tickled that... Do you think he was just as enamored that you guys at your age were, had dug one up? I, Without question, as I sat there, I could feel his enthusiasm for the fact that we had tracked him down. I don't know that he felt like we were weird guys who for 23 years had given up families and lives to do this. When he met us, he saw we were just two regular guys, two lawyers, and this was, uh, this was a journey that Brian had been on. I joined him, and... He was right. You're right. He smiled. He was the we. I never felt like in those that hour and a half, two hours that we sat there at lunch, that he got annoyed being there. He was talking freely, not about solutions, but generalities of what he did. I mean, if we had to do it all over again right now, my God, the questions I would ask him, yeah. he wouldn't have answered. He wouldn't have answered any of them. But so he was a little bit 
he wanted to get it, it goes right back john to the very first question brian asked him on the phone and when he said as far as i'm concerned the game is still on even in that moment sitting with him the game was still on did was he gonna was he gonna benefit uh financially no it was gonna sell any more books i bought my book on ebay for three dollars you know back then so you know it, it, it was it was more that here he was he was 23 years older than when he buried them here and we're finding this thing and he enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the lunch we had with him. It would never struck me as a nuisance. We left there on a real high, not just because we turned it in and, and Brian got the jewel, but because the author was, I remember feeling he was very tickled by the fact that we had spent the time and that we had actually found it. So yeah, I don't could, think if people could, came along, he would have been annoyed. Yeah, you could tell when he was telling us about Especially when he touched the cask and saw it for the first time. Definitely. In a long time. Definitely. You could tell there was the guy who would jump fences yeah. to dig dig holes and write things down. And he said that he would... Um, this is something I may not have actually posted. He said that he would take the photographs and whatever he wanted to put in the photos and all the clues... And he would put it in an, a big envelope and send it to John Jude Palancar, but he had like this rubber stamp or something that said the secret on it, and he would stamp the back of the envelope with it. Oh, nice. <laughs> you know, it's good that there was that kind of camaraderie back then when you, this is 13, 14 years ago, and now there's still a lot of interest going on, but the, the camaraderie isn't like what it used to be on the message boards, and hopefully we can get to an atmosphere where it is back to that same kind of work ethic that everybody had back then of trying to combine efforts to figure things out. And a lot has been figured out since then. We've gone back and dissected Cleveland We've dissected Chicago, found a bunch of things that were missed. We've proposed a deeper meaning to things going on. But, you know, like for the most part, the guys in Chicago, they didn't solve every clue. They found a cask. You guys didn't get every clue, but you got enough of the big ones to get you in the right spot to dig a hole to find a cask. If it's that easy, what happened on Expedition Unknown? Where's where's the cask, man? <laughs> Let's uh, let's get into that a little bit. So, I mean, it was we first heard on our little group that you guys were going to be doing this well ahead of time, and it was pretty exciting. And we got to hear some of the details about how it went down, but we all had to wait like everybody else to watch the episode and see what happened. You know, why don't you get into it a little bit about how that all transpired? I know that they contacted you and they said, hey, you know, you know, why don't you come on the show? We're going to go do this. And then before you knew it, uh, Andy was was in uh, Cleveland again uh, talking with the, the crew, right? I knew of the show. I didn't know much about it, but they had come up with this idea, and the producer had run across, I guess, the article from Cleveland and was aware of the book. So she called Brian, and then Brian called me, so you got to talk to this lady. They, they want to do an episode on The Secret. And going back to when we left Bob Evans, uh, restaurant. I remember driving home and we were talking to each other going, you know, when they make this into a movie someday, who's going to play you? Who's going to play me? And we were laughing about it 14 years ago. So now the idea that they were going to do a TV show was hysterical. They were going to get to revisit it. We, we, we wound up, uh, I know they came to New York uh, and met me and I showed them a bunch of things about New York because after Cleveland, Brian and I had 
scattered around New York quite a bit. Uh, I remember going to Ellis Island with him way back when and and done some work there. So we were just kind of, I was trying to get them in the mood and show them some things, but also show them how incredibly expansive and difficult New York was. Now, so, did, did you give him any information? I noticed that Josh proposed his own kind of little solve for, for New York, or at least a, a partial solve to what he, what he thought the verse was talking about. Did you feed any of that in to him or was that his original idea or do you know i spent time with the film crew or not the film crew the direct the producer and a couple other uh people in battery park and i was pointing out certain things um one part of this uh expedition on knowing that andy may not really be that familiar with was when they first contacted me um they had no idea you know where they were going to search or anything and they asked me, because I was involved with the Cleveland find, they asked me, where is the closest? How, where are you the closest out of, out of all the sites? And I know I had been to St. Augustine about three times, so I had suggested St. Augustine. I said, but, you know, it's going to be tough getting permission to dig there. And I had a friend in, uh, who lives in St. Augustine, Al Maciak, and he was invaluable boots on the ground actually getting permission from the people in saint augustine were helping to get the permission there and he also he met with the producers in the uh the historic library there showed them the pictures all sorts of things he ended up not getting on the show um because they wanted uh, me and andy to be the ones searching for it right but uh, I want to give a shout out to Al Maciag because he was invaluable. He's been researching this for about three or four years now himself. He just doesn't post on the board. The the owner of the Fountain of Youth, he he was reluctant. I mean, he's reluctant to let anybody look there. I know George has had some difficulties searching around with a GPR, but you have a relationship with him. What are his thoughts? Has he discussed anything about the widespread popularity that a that a national TV show could bring to uh, the hunt and what it what it might do. He thinks it's just going to bring more people digging at night. <laughs> I have a mutual friend with the owner as well, and I've talked to him a good bit, and he's just sick of people digging in the Fountain of Youth. Right. If you get caught digging in the Fountain of Youth, that's it. You will be prosecuted. Like, he's at that point now. But I would say this. Um, he was really cool that day, and, yeah, he knew that the exposure was going to bring all kinds of Folks, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick funny aside. I told this to Brian yesterday. I was in court yesterday. I got a, a, a phone call. I came out of court. It was a woman from Washington. And I said, who is this? I, got, I looked you up. I, I solved St. Augustine. I said, what? She said, yeah. I said, who are you? She said, oh, I saw you on Expedition Unknown. I just wanted to call you. It was sort of like, it was a little, it was a little bit like, um, it was a little bit like Stephen King's Misery. I'm like, who, who are you? So she said, I said, well, have you been looking for a long time? She goes, no, I saw the show. So I went online. I spent about five minutes on it. And I'm thinking, odds are she's really crazy, but what if she's just a savant and she actually did? So she's telling me, but I'll, I'll she must, so have, she must have spent more time trying to find you and how yeah, to contact to you the, to find a treasure. But the solve that she told me, she said, well, if you look at the the, the sign that's buried in, you know, in the, or whatever, in the water, and as you walk in, there's a conquistador right there. I said, right. 
And she said, well, he's wearing silver plating and it mentions silver. She says, I think it's buried right behind him. So I start to realize she doesn't really know, but she's so into it. Like she's really into it, which was kind of cute. And she said, and this is my favorite part. She said, well, the first talks of shell, uh, limestone, salt. And so she's trying to tell me, well, it's Florida. So there's shells. She goes in salt because there's a refreshment stand right behind him. And I'm sure there's a, a thing of salt on the counter. So I start laughing because I'm thinking she has thinks she's got the perfect solve. So yes, it's bringing out a lot of people. Some of them are just, uh, you know, hopeful, but to get to your point about the owner, I truly believe that if, especially in the group that you've put together, because I always think about the fact God, I, I would, I would love John, if, if, you found Milwaukee, if George found St. Augustine, like you want to spread the wealth of the excitement of the feeling of unearthing it, it was second to none. And you guys have worked so hard and are so smart about so much of it that you deserve that feeling. So I feel like because of the, this small group or this, you know, the, 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 the knowledge of certain people, if George, for example, you went back uh, and you had a real solve, something that was legitimate, and you're not just some guy coming from California who saw the episode on TV, and you showed him the clues, I believe he would be excited enough to accompany you and say, well, let's take a look and see what we can find. I don't think he wants a 1,000 people coming and digging, but I think if it's a well-thought-out potential solve... That's true. I have no doubt, for example, that if I called him tomorrow and said, hey, John, we're, we're going to be down at St. Augustine. Something unbelievable came up. I want to show you these pictures, see what you think, because he's also a wealth of knowledge. As we walked around with him, he's going, oh, that wasn't there. And the fountain with the kid with the that was there was moved in 19, you know, uh, 94. So he knows everything. And he got sucked in. And if you're just somebody off the beaten path who wants to dig, uh-uh, I agree. He'll have you arrested. But if you're George, who's been to St. Augustine, who knows John, are you, you're, you've put your time and your dues in and your theories are legit. I think he would welcome those types of endeavors because I think he would like to find the solve if it didn't mean digging up the entire park. He would definitely like to have it solved, especially because it would stop people solving. He does have requirements. Like, you, you can dig. There's a, there's a historical director that you have to go through, and his requirements are you have to have insurance, number one, and you have to have a damn good solve. Like, he has to look at it and be like, yeah, okay, that's that's plausible. Uh, and if you email him with those things, he'll come back to you and he'll be like, yeah, I'll accompany you on a dig. You can dig a very, very small area, exactly where you think it is. And he'll accompany you. I mean, even when we were down there and Brian was walking through a lot of the clues and, and the observatory and the windrows and the small men and that, there's this diorama that's been there since 1960 with these little guys, you know, George, you've been there and, and in front of the windrows, near men with windrows. And you sit there and, you go, and he goes, oh, that's been there since the 60s. And so you know that was there and you know you're close in the observatory. So we felt pretty good about that spot. And just to, to give you this part of it, like when we went back and forth and got the hit with the GPR, uh, there were electrical lines, gas lines. It sure seemed like, you know, it could have been excavated by mistake. Those things are useless, those GPRs. Let me yeah, tell you. they are. They are. <laughs> but, but when way, as many times as like we had to shoot one scene again or again, we, we hit that spot and they started digging it out and they saw that clear, smooth surface that looked like uh, it was a, it was, it, it looked like it was see-through and you would see the dirt and my heart jumped out of my chest. Brian, I, you did too. Like we were dying. Cause I'm thinking, holy shit, like we, that's it. 
part of me was like, I'm not worthy of this moment. Guys like George spent, John, you spent like, I was glad Brian was there. I know he spent a ton of time there, but I thought, all right, Josh is promoting it, the, 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 the host. And we thought we had it. And when he started to unearth it and it came out that black tile. Yeah, it's that super reaction, Oh, that reaction was so dead. We didn't, they didn't, they didn't say, shoot it again, give us another reaction. We died. Because I remember saying, I remember saying, who knew we were digging in, in Ponce de uh, uh, formal bathroom, master bathroom. Like, there was no reason that this black smooth <laughs> tile would be two and a half feet down as opposed to a beer can or something, you know? So that was crushing. But I will tell you guys this as well, and I don't know if, I don't know if this, could, well, this didn't get shared at all, but even after that, we spent 10 hours there, we wound up going way out to the point, remember, Brian, that white rock? It's by an anchor. And then there, and then there's another monument that they showed you digging at. I think in the credits. Yes, but it, but we wound up spending some time there. We had we thought we didn't have it, and we got to that point, and that's the area that you're standing by the water. If you look out, there's like this man-made pole in the distance, a huge crucifix, I think, and it kind of looked like the palm tree. That's not really a palm tree, and if you stand at a certain angle, that white rock looked like the that 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 uh, rock of Gibraltar or glacier thing that's in the water that we couldn't figure out. And we're looking at it and it says by the tall tree. And now John, the owner of the found youth says something about this is the memorial for pine. It was for captain pine. And he goes, pine, pine is a tall tree. He goes, and he goes, holy shit. So now all of a sudden we go, wait a second. This this marker matches that white stone. If you stand here, that crucifix looks like the, the bark of the tree that's making up the palm tree that has no reflection in the water. So we start digging around that. And again, wasn't there, but just shows you, you know, right uh, down the way from those obelisks. So it's, God, man, you know, you know it's there. And it's maddening to not be able to narrow it down. You guys have done so much work on it. And, and I believe that at some point you're going to figure out one missing piece that takes you to that spot. And I think when you do... And you contact John, he's going to say, yeah, come on down and and let's find it. And I, George, I agree with you. He'll be thrilled that people will stop. But for the moment, he'll be more thrilled to hold the cask in his hands when you pull it out. Because you, you become a child. You're a 10-year-old child digging up buried treasure. And it's super cool. Yeah, just for anybody that's going to dig in St. Augustine, if you want a piece of Expedition Unknown history, that sewer pipe is everywhere right outside the gig. Just everywhere you dig, you will hit that sewer pipe. You will pull up just bags of it. And and for the creepy stalker lady, that uh that Ponce de Leon statue's only been there like ten years. <laughs> by the way, um, I just want to point out I've also been contacted by many people saying, you know, they've solved things in five minutes and they know that it's in Dallas or they know that it's in Salt Lake City or St. Louis. And I think I think we should let them go with it and because <laughs> the journey is more fun than fu than the destination you know it's, right it's a big part of it i totally agree especially especially if you have kids or something like that if you think that it's in salt lake city and you have these clues take your kids and go go on a treasure hunt i mean that that would be fantastic yeah, the, we've we've had a since the expedition unknown episode, we've had an influx of new users. It's it's crazy, and they have all these ideas that are just outlandish ideas that couldn't possibly be true. But it's important that we kind of nurture that because you never know what they're going to find. You, these puzzles aren't solved. You, we don't know the answer. So right, if somebody thinks it's in Dallas, you know, 
a woman actually was like trying to convince me that it was in Dallas and I wouldn't say no. <laughs> right. He said, if you think it's in Dallas, you know, these are plausible theories. Do you have any kids? I think she had two daughters. I said, go, go on a little vacation. Go, go for it. I remember about five years back, maybe six years back, we vacationed in the Outer Banks and I have my then, my six, seven, eight, she'll be 18 next week. My daughter was 12 and my nephew was, was also 12. And we had done some work on North Carolina, but it didn't be being there. And so I said, hey, you guys want to spend a day on a treasure hunt? And to this day, I mean, other than the, the one I did with Brian, it was one of the most enjoyable days of my entire life. We started at the wing. We, I showed them the clues. We worked our way across the Bound Bridge. We got to Roanoke. You know, we did the whole thing. And it was such a thrill as a dad with your kids. We didn't even bring digging tools that day. We just did the journey, like Brian said. So good, clean family fun, great. Are there guys who are more involved scientifically trying to solve it? Sure, it takes all kinds. But that one person who happened to see something an image that the four of us don't know, but way back then, you know, stood on that ground and saw it and goes, you know, that reminds me of the such and such obelisk statue. And you go, wow, because sometimes you just got to get lucky. And maybe there's going to be somebody in this new batch who has sees one of the identifiers and is familiar with that and would never know unless you happen to be at that spot. And maybe that'll unlock a clue. It does. Whenever Brian said to me, he needed a fresh pair of eyes. And sometimes for all the nutty things, you sift through every now and then there's a good one. You know, back in 1982, when I bought the book and I was going down because I thought it was in Philadelphia and taking the trolley down to the site every week or so, I had a ball. It was a lot of fun. And there was no internet and nothing beats that. It's, it, it's just a great hobby and a great thing to do. I think one of the most important clues that I ever got from St. Augustine actually came from my dad, who is in no way interested in this. Like, I presented this to my dad, like you were saying, with fresh eyes. I kind of wanted, you know, to, to have somebody who wasn't interested at all look at it. And he reminded me the, the very first lines in the, the St. Augustine, um, first chapter written in water. He reminded me that as soon as you walked in the Fountain of Youth in the 80s, there was where there are now pictures, there was a painting of Florida and written right in the Gulf of Mexico was the first chapter. I would have never known that clue unless my dad told me. And that is just so I see now I just got chills when you tell that story. Like that is so that is so cool. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. That's so cool. There's a free clue for St. Augustine Hunter. There you go. <laughs> so if you wanted to know more about the background of Expedition Unknown Although um, I told them we were very close to St. Augustine, I, I knew there was a chance we wouldn't get permission. So, you know, Al helped us with that. Uh, but they want they had me walk through the solve for St. Augustine to see, you know, they wanted to judge it for themselves. And then they had me go through a solve for another city as a backup. And I picked uh, the North Carolina one. I thought that that was the next closest one. So that was the backup for Expedition Unknown. If we couldn't get permission for St. Augustine, we were going to probably do North Carolina. There was a lot cut out, it seems like, from the episode. Was there anything cut out that could be of any help? We went through pretty much all the clues of verse 9, which is um, 
the verse that most people think goes with St. Augustine, where we went through the near men with windrows, what shell, limestone, silver, and salt means. I explained about the goose pen uh, or the duck pond, and uh, you can still hear the honking. So they cut all of that out. So uh, I was told that uh, they're probably going to do a repacking of the episode at some point online where they're going to show the uncut version of a lot of stuff. So when that comes out, I guess I will let you know. We we worked for like nine hours till it was dark. I mean, we were there for nine hours shooting that day, and they truncated it to, without commercials, about eight minutes of footage. <laughs> and out of all of it, the, the only questions I got beyond the treasure hunt were, did I have a prosthetic leg? Because I was wearing this compression <laughs> sleeve on my leg at the time because I, two days before we went down to shoot, I tore my calf muscle and I didn't want to be on camera on crutches or a cane. So I figured, oh, I'll look cool. Meanwhile, I look like a, a pirate on the treasure hunt with a, a peg leg. But I, I remember that, um, I remember just for, for if you if you wonder about people's motivation and stuff, the host was very, very into it. I think because it was gettable, it was possible. Like I guess all these things he looks for, whether it's the Yeti or or, or Loch Ness monster. Yeah, he never finds anything. No, and that's what everybody said to me, John. They said, "Well, that's, going with that's him actually that's actually how I sold the episode to them." Is because yeah. when I was talking to the producers, I said jokingly, "You know, he goes after these huge things from history, and he can find a cask, yeah. <laughs> especially and, with our help." And thought <laughs> he was he was so into it, and I and I joked with Brian about it afterwards. I said, "It's kind of like." What would I call it, Brian? Like the 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 ginger and Marianne principle from Gilligan's Island. Like everybody always thought ginger was so attractive. She was in that cocktail dress, and and that was the big script. You be with ginger, and and that to me is like Stonehenge and the Loch Ness monster. But over time, you realize Marianne was was kind of cute and really attractive, and there's something about her. <laughs> he was gettable. Like there was something about her, like maybe the common man could get Marianne. So here's Josh Gates, and I remember after we left. We did, we did St. Augustine, we did Cleveland. They were going up to Cleveland after that, and Brian was super busy with work, because the kind of work he does that week. And so they asked, and I was able to fly up to Cleveland to walk them through, but they went to Palancar after that. And just to give you a sense, I went home, and Josh Gates texts me out of nowhere. Uh, two days later, he goes, hey, it's Josh Gates here. Um, I'm with Palancar, I haven't cracked him yet. He, he's, I, I ride back to hysterical, I love the real-time update. I asked him what Palancar would sell the the Cleveland painting because he still has the paintings. I said, Brian, you should have that over your fireplace. Like that's your painting, <laughs> right? And way back when, I think he was willing to sell. What was it, Brian? For two thousand dollars? Way back when? Yeah, so, yeah. And so now, he, but he, uh, he said, I talked to Palancar. He'll sell the Cleveland original for seven thousand. Oh, so, the appreciation, right? I said you should have bought it when you had the chance. <laughs> he said, I said, see if you can negotiate with him. I said, uh, he writes back to me. I feel like you might get him down to about 5,000. I got about zero out of him. So he really pressed him that day trying so, and the point was he was enamored, not as like a TV host who's trying to get ratings, but like a little kid. He sent me a few texts afterwards. Like if you ever hear about anything, I'd love to, <laughs> uh, I'd love to be a part. So he got sucked in. And even the last line of the show, which was the one that gave me goosebumps when he said, uh, he goes, of all, I got beat today. I got smoked or something. He said, but, you know, uh, this is by far my favorite expedition I've ever done. I think it's because he realized 
how fun it is to go out and try to dig with your hands and find this buried treasure and that it is gettable. And so, I think it's uh, the only one that he was able to drive an IROC Z in. <laughs> that's that's probably the real reason. You know, we Brian did a really nice job of walking him through a lot of St. Augustine. I, I know we had talked about North Carolina too. I remember at the time they didn't give permission to dig in North Carolina, so it wasn't even. I remember he told us they the Park Service wouldn't let them dig there, so that one was rooted out pretty quickly, which was disappointing. I think if you had, I don't know anybody who'd want to watch all nine hours. There was a lot of ground covered and just walking through things, certain tree placement that George, I'm sure you've seen the over and over and over. It's just conversation that was had, little bits and pieces from the from the guy who owns the park telling us a bit of the history. Remember, Brian, he told us about the fountain that was there with the girl with the um, umbrella, right? Yeah, Wasn't yeah we were going through everything. I even explained uh, that I thought this was either the first or that St. Augustine was either the first or last place that Byron Price buried a cask because he's calling them casks. And they mentioned cask on a sign there, and it seems to refer to it as a container but it was actually referring to a helmet. That's what a cask is, is a helmet, C-A-S-Q-U-E. And I think Byron Price just misunderstood it to mean container. And because it's it's written that way on the side. Yeah, and, Brian said, Brian said, which was so brilliant when he saw that, because you're right, when you look up cask, nothing defines a cask as a treasure holder. It doesn't exist. Right. He, so, you're right, Brian pointed that out when we stood there, he said, look, it's like he was standing and there's a, they show you the cask, the helmet, the conquistador, the helmet, and talking about it. And there's a story about something that shipped over at that time and the cask. And, and Brian said, I guarantee he was standing right here when he said, hmm, cask is kind of a cool term for treasure holder. And that's how it morphed into these casks that were buried. There's no question that's what happened. So Right. That's where he got the name from. There, right. From that sign from the Fountain of Youth. And it was probably either the first or the last place he was at. That gave him the idea. That is all the time we have for this episode of The Secret Podcast. Remember to visit us on our Facebook page. And thanks for joining us for this month's episode. Tune in next month when we will discuss the Houston portion of the puzzle with our special guests Brian Hill, formerly of the Houston Parks Department, an avid treasure hunter and longtime participant in The Secret, our good friend Will House down in Houston. Until next time... You take care now. Tune in next time for another edition of Shh, The Secret Podcast with your hosts, J.M. and Bernstein. Available on iTunes. <laughs>